Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast with me, Phil Agnew. Now, those of you who keep up to speed with the world of behaviour science will know that in 2010, the UK government created a behavioural insights team. The goal of that team was to leverage new insights from the world of behaviour science and use them in policy decisions. The group, known in the media as the Nudge Unit, was and still is a massive success. Today, over 200 people work for the unit and it's present in seven countries worldwide. I'm very lucky to be joined today by one of the most influential members of that organisation. Dr. Michael Hultworth is Managing Director of the Behaviour Insights Team in the North American unit. Michael has been one of the leading figures in developing the field of applying behaviour science to government, and he's co-authored several frameworks that we've spoken about before on this podcast, including EAST and Mindspace. Previously, Michael was a senior policy advisor in the Cabinet Office, and he's got experience of policy development and delivery. Michael has also just published his first book, Behavioural Insights, co-authored with Elspliff Kirkman. It gives a definitive introduction to behavioural insights. In today's show, we'll cover Michael's experience of applying nudges in government, chat about some of the most eye-opening case studies from his book, and ask how effective financial incentives really are. To kick off, here's Michael introducing himself. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. My name is Michael Hallsworth. I'm the Managing Director for the Behavioral Insights team in North America. I've been with the team pretty much since it was set up in 2010 as a a small uh, unit within the UK government. Um, it had this remit to apply behavioural economics and social psychology to improve the way policy is made and the way services are designed. You know, it was referred to in, in the media mainly as the nudge unit. Since 2014, we've been a kind of separate organisation. We detached ourselves from the UK government. And we have around, you know, about 200 people in, I think, seven countries now. 
and we work across a variety of areas, but still with that kind of focus on how can we have a kind of social impact, improve society through applying what we know about human behaviour. The Behavioural Insights team is famed for multiple small yet hugely impactful improvements to British policy decisions. To date, they've run over 750 projects, which include redesigning tax letters to encourage more people to pay their tax on time, they've altered signs on the M1 to reduce the amount of accidents, and they've encouraged 400,000 people to start saving for their pension. But before we dive into some of the examples shared in Michael's book, I asked him how the Behavioural Insights team approaches a problem. We tend to give examples of where we um, modified you know, processes or messages and we tested um, the different outcomes. And that's really important because, as I mentioned, um, the way in which you do things, the way in which you structure a, a process or a service can have a big impact on its success. However, um, that can lead people to think, oh, it's just about tweaking things. And actually what we try and say, and we said this throughout our existence, actually, if you go back even 10 years, um, that this is more like a lens through which you can see government action or, you know, in the private sector, any kind of of, of company's um, activities. And you say, well, how can we apply this way of thinking to improve the core business of government or companies. As Michael says, it is not about making a few small tweaks. It is about viewing policy change through a different lens. Michael, in his book, explains this in regards to healthy eating. He explains that there are, of course, small individual tweaks you could make to government policy to increase healthy eating. For example, there is numerous studies that show the amount we eat isn't to do with how hungry we are, it's to do with portion size. One study served participants mac and cheese for lunch over the course of a month. On different days, portion size would vary. One day someone would get 500 grams of mac and cheese and the next they would get 1,000 grams. Interestingly, most participants in the study finished the meal regardless of the size of the portion. When questioned, they stated that they failed to even notice the change in portion sizes at all. With that in mind, a small tweak to lessen calorie intake would be to reduce the size of plates, portions and food packages in cafes, restaurants and supermarkets. But the Behavioural Insights team are aware that it's not as simple as just adding small portion sizes to get consumers to change behaviour. There are already small, medium and large sizes at most stores and offering small portions won't mean that people will go for them. So the team look for different avenues. One example is the 2016 change to sugar tax in the UK. Rather than create a tax on sugary drinks that simply gets passed onto the consumer's bill, essentially making the consumer pay more, they helped devise a tax policy that encouraged the producers to create drinks with lower sugar levels. The tax created incentives for beverage companies to reduce their drinks' sugar levels to get a reduction in tax. Since implementing, 15% of the market have reformulated their drinks to make them healthier. Sprite have halved the amount of sugar per 100 grams, so has Lucasade, while Dr Pepper, Lipton Iced Tea and 7up have also made significant reductions. Now this is a great solution because consumers don't need to change their behaviour. They can keep buying Lucasade, but the drink is simply healthier for them. Here's Michael talking about that implementation and how successful it was. With healthy eating, what 
what we were involved in was, you know, how do you structure the sugar drinks tax in the UK? And I won't go into too much detail, detail here, but this tax is structured quite differently from other kind of taxes with the same goal. And it's different because it tries to focus on the behavior of producers and encourage reformulation, which can have a much bigger impact on people's kind of calorie consumption than perhaps trying to shift um, people's choices uh, away from like high sugar drinks. And, the, you know, it's shown there's been a very big reduction in the amount of sugar consumed through, through soft drinks. And that's the kind of power of, of thinking slightly differently about behavior, I think. It doesn't have to be just about tweak. It can be about how do you kind of structure the overall, the, the overall system you're dealing with. Now, we'll get on to more of the Behaviour Insights team's successes later on. But first, I wanted to ask Michael about the scepticism the group faced when they first started. Back in 2010, Michael and the rest of the team faced a lot of pressure from both the government and the media. Many couldn't believe that the team was using taxpayers' money to implement policy based on psychology, not economics. This type of pressure won't be dissimilar to what many of you might face when trying to implement behaviour science at work. Perhaps your boss will push back or your CEO will question what you're doing. Here's Michael explaining how he and his team dealt with that pressure. It's maybe not a surprise that there was scepticism. If you think about it, you know, I've I've been a government official myself. Uh, Over time, there are various new kind of ideas that come along. Um, New units are set up with kind of fanfare and they, they fail to deliver or they, um, they fade away. You know, there was a lot of interest around the idea of, of nudge. So I kind of, I completely understand why people would be saying, yeah, why are you focusing on, on this idea? Maybe at the expense of more proven approaches, because at the time um, there was relatively little evidence about how these ideas might translate into the real world. And that, that kind of informed the way we went about things. It's, definitely motivated our focus on evaluation. So you could see, you know, this is the impact that we had. We want to prove that this stuff made a difference and it could not have done. I mean, I fully recognize that. Um, and maybe there's a certain amount of luck that we happen to focus on some areas where, you know, there was room for improvement. Um, it also meant that we kind of created a, a sunset clause. You know, we, I suppose, applied this kind of behavioral approach to our own setup. Um, if we hadn't achieved certain goals after two years, the default was that we would be shut down. I think the thinking there was that people who were involved in the setup of the team had been in government before, and they knew that what can happen is you, you get these kind of zombie uh, units that stagger on, even though their original value and purpose has kind of been lost. I think there are two crucial aspects there. First, they base the success of their unit on measurable results. And secondly, they inserted a clause that meant the team would be disbanded if they didn't hit these goals. For those interested, the team's goal wasn't easy. They needed to generate a 10 times return on their cost, a lofty goal that they actually hit comfortably. Perhaps these two aspects are something that we could use when implementing similar teams in our own organisations. Now, I moved on and asked Michael about some of the brilliant applications of behavior science that he references in his book. And he started with this brilliant example about how financial incentives might not be the best way to change behavior. So one of the examples that we talk about in the book 
concerns, uh, you know, workplace accidents. It concerns employees in a Chinese textile factory um, who were kind of throwing um, waste scraps of cloth on the floor next to them, um, which created a slipping hazard. And this was kind of a habit of their, their way of working. And after looking at the, the issue, um, the researchers um, kind of concluded that the workers were kind of financially motivated to continue working without breaks. And so initially there was a more traditional approach to influencing this kind of behavior, um, offering monetary incentives to people if they put the waste in the appropriate kind of bin, I suppose, or the receptacle. And this didn't really have much impact. And so instead, what was tried was um, putting some kind of visual cues on the floor. Um, And so they introduced these kind of, um, I suppose, they're called decals, it's kind of large stickers, which um, depicted golden coins. And these were put on the, the factory floors. And these coins are considered symbolizing you know, fortune and luck, meaning that employees may have you know, a, a disincentive to cover them with, with waste. And the, the paper kind of shows that introducing these, these uh, stickers on the floor led to a 20% decline in, in waste, which meant, means that you know, a, a change to the environment overcame a kind of entrenched habit. Conventional thinking would suggest that the workers would only change their behaviour if they were financially incentivized, But that is not the case. This subtle change to the environment led to a 20% decline in waste on the floor versus those traditional financial incentives. I was surprised when I first read this, but Michael backs it up with more examples in his book. One study was conducted in Zambia back in 2010. Back then, Zambia's HIV prevalence was 14.3%, one of the highest rates in the world. And yet, demand for protective contraception was low. To promote the use of contraception, researchers recruited people embedded in the community to sell female condoms. Hairdressers, barbers and other well-known members of the community were asked to help sell the condoms. The researchers, however, wanted to check and see if financial rewards were working, so they split the test. Half of the hairdressers and barbers got a 90% commission on sales, a decent incentive, while the other half got no financial commission but instead documented their progress on a public chart which documented their sales. Now you'd expect those with the financial incentive to sell more, but it wasn't the case. The sellers with the public progress chart sold twice the number of condoms over the course of the year. The social recognition clearly outweighed the financial reward. Whether it's Chinese textile workers or Zambian hairdressers, financial incentives don't always win. Here's Michael giving another example, this time looking at if financial incentives could change the amount of antibiotics prescribed by doctors. It's um, an intervention that we did a bit concerning the way that antibiotics are prescribed. The the challenge was how do you kind of reduce the prescribing of antibiotics when they're not needed? The traditional way of doing this has been through using incentives to kind of pay pay doctors to prescribe fewer antibiotics. And you know that does have an impact. But we were also interested in other other uh, ways of doing this which don't rely on incentives. And so we looked at the data on who was prescribing antibiotics at different levels. And it turned out there were, there were some people um, or some, some GP practices that were prescribing at much higher rates than others in their local area. 
And then what happened was we we worked with the chief medical officer to to write to um, these prescribers who were kind of higher than their peers. And half the group got the letter and half didn't. We also had to pay quite a lot of attention to what's in that letter. Um, because we said, you know, 80% of practices in the local area prescribed fewer antibiotics per head than, than yours. And what we found is that the, the letter did reduce antibiotic prescribing compared to no letter. We actually concluded that the letter uh, produced an effect that was comparable to uh, an ongoing incentive scheme to reduce prescribing. So the power of a kind of a social norm was comparable to the power of incentives. Sending a letter to doctors that stated they prescribed more antibiotics than 80% of doctors nearby dramatically changed the behaviour. After reading the letter, these doctors started to prescribe far fewer antibiotics. It's classic social proof. They learn that the behaviour is unusual and different to the norm, and those doctors feel an urge to change. What's incredible, though, is this one letter had the same effect as a financial incentive scheme that actually paid doctors to prescribe less. The study revealed that the UK could save millions nationwide by removing costly incentives and instead by simply using a smartly designed letter. This study shows that messages are a powerful way to change behaviour. Michael shares in his book how he noted the power of messages after reading a study by Tversky. Like before, this study focused on doctors. Here, surveys were sent out to doctors asking how likely they were to opt for surgery for a fictitious patient. One set of doctors were told that the surgery option had a one-month survival rate of 90% while the other set of doctors were told that there was a 10% mortality rate in the first month after surgery. Both sets of doctors were then asked whether or not they would advise the surgery. Now these messages mean the same thing. Both messages essentially say that the surgery causes 10% of patients to die in the first month. Now you would expect both sets of doctors reading the two different messages to act in the same way. After all, the facts are true in both scenarios. But they don't. 84% of doctors who read that it had a one-month survival rate of 90% chose the surgery, while only 50% of the doctors chose surgery when they read it had a 10% mortality rate. Even highly trained professionals are drastically swayed by the way we frame our messages. Michael went on to give me another example of how messages sway behaviour. This study, conducted by one of his colleagues, Gabby Judah, looked at if messages could convince people to wash their hands more. The study consisted of going into service stations uh, in the UK, so it's motorway service stations, and running experiments to see what messages uh, were most effective at um, prompting hand washing. And the way they set up this experiment was really nice because um, they, they placed messages by the soap dispensers. They could record by using electronic sensors how much soap was dispensed. And this is really nice because you're not asking people to self-report on how much soap they used or or more specifically, you're not asking them, did you wash your hands? Because of course, people have the incentive to kind of not be honest there or to, they may not actually recall. And they found some really interesting things that, you know, um, men, for example, much more um, responsive to messages based on disgust. I think one of the messages was, was like, wash it off or eat it later or something like that. So, you know, the idea that you'd be, putting germs in in your mouth. Women were more responsive to messages around 
knowing the risks of not washing hands. And I think the only message that performed well for both men and women was the message, uh, is the person next to you washing the soap, which was more around the norms. And I think that's a really nice study because they went to some uh, effort to say, you know, is it a real kind of measure of behavior? And do, can we be sure that it was the message that was prompting this and they set up? So it was a real world environment as well. So not just in a, in a laboratory, but you know how people would actually be washing their hands in, in real world settings. So men wash their hands more when reading a message that references discuss. Women wash their hands more after seeing information about the risks of not hand washing, while both groups wash their hands more when the message asks them to check if the person next to you is washing with soap. It's a great study that gets you thinking about the messages we're seeing around COVID-19. We're told to apply hand sanitizer whenever we enter shops, cafes and restaurants to halt the spread of coronavirus. But maybe a smarter strategy would be to simply have a sign that states, is the person in front of you using hand sanitizer? It is common to think of financial incentives as the smartest way to encourage people to change behaviour. But Michael's insights show that this single-minded way of thinking is detrimental. There are so many studies that show how non-financial incentives can work just as well. As Michael says, behavioural insights isn't just about testing one small tweak and hoping it works for the best. It is about viewing the world through a different lens that encourages you to question these conventional beliefs. This stance has helped the British government create a sugary drinks tax that actually works, decrease the amount of antibiotics doctors prescribe, and stop Chinese workers from chucking their rubbish on the floor. Now, if you've enjoyed Michael's insights, then you'll love his book. I've left a link to buy the book in the show notes, so click the link below to grab a copy. And if you're enjoying Nudge, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people find the show. If you have any questions for me or want to get in touch, head over to our site, nudgepodcast.com, for all my contact details. And thank you for listening to this episode. I will be back in two weeks with some more insights to feast on. Cheers. Cheers.